I might take a hard look at that. I think it, it's, it's, it's very much, again, art more than science in my experience. And I, uh, what we do, what I do, is I ask very hard questions. I say, how do we know that we wouldn't get the same thing if we didn't put in a single dollar? Because that's the most important question you could ask. Because if, if you can do it without putting in a single dollar, then you shouldn't be doing anything. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Maria Dulas from the Citizens Budget Commission. We know by now you're very familiar with us, but just in case this is one of your first episodes or your first episode listening, you can check out all our work at GothamGazette.com or CBCNY.org. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax. Maria's at Maria Dulas, and you can find our organizations as well. So for today's episode, we are joined by James Patchett, President and CEO of the New York City Economic Development Corporation, the nonprofit arm of city government that is tasked with spearheading city efforts to create jobs and keep New York City's economy growing and thriving. Good morning. Good morning, Ben. Thanks for having me. So we're going to discuss the de Blasio administration's strategy and record on job creation, as well as key citywide initiatives under EDC's purview, like ferry service. Maria? After the mayor was elected in 2013, CBC published a report that carefully reviewed the city's economic development record under Bloomberg and offered guidance on how to establish priorities and improve EDC's effectiveness under Mayor de Blasio. To start off Mayor de Blasio's second term, we published a report reviewing how much progress was made on those recommendations over the last four years. I'd like to introduce Riley Edwards, the principal author of that report, who will kick us off with the data point and a summary of the report's findings. Hi. So today's data point is $3.2 billion, which is the amount New York City spent on economic development in 2016, including tax expenditures, operating costs, and capital spending. For the last four years, New York City's economy has been strong with growth in employment and median income, but poverty is still high, and the sectors that are growing the fastest have jobs that generally pay low wages. A lot of what influences the city's economy isn't under the mayor's control, but with the amount of resources, that $3.2 billion devoted to economic development by the city, it's important to make sure it's invested effectively. In 2013, we made five recommendations, so I'll go through each one and what the progress has been. The first recommendation was to make as-of-right tax expenditures more cost-effective. An as-of-right tax expenditure is available to any firm that meets certain qualifications. These were almost half of that $3.2 billion total in 2016. Any changes to tax expenditures have to be passed at the state level, and there haven't been any reforms since Mayor de Blasio took office. One program which the mayor previously said should be ended was actually extended by the legislature. Last year, the council passed a law that requires the IBO, the Independent Budget Office, to evaluate these tax expenditures, which will provide insight into whether they're working. That information should then be translated into action, whether that's reforming or ending programs that aren't doing what they're meant to do. The second recommendation was to create more detailed standards for awarding discretionary tax expenditures. These are benefits that EDC or IDA customizes for individual projects. Most of the projects that were approved during the first two years of the de Blasio administration received benefits below $30,000 per job that they said they'd create. However, there were a handful receiving benefits anywhere from $100,000 to $600,000 per job. There's a lot of factors that go into explaining those high numbers, including the amount of investment a business is making 
or an industry that's a priority for the city, but we think there should be a formula that sets a cap on that per job subsidy that takes into account all of those other factors while avoiding the wide variation that we've got now. The third recommendation was to invest in infrastructure in underdeveloped neighborhoods. EDC's made significant capital investments in every borough and in a lot of different neighborhoods, but there hasn't been a new mega project on the scale of Hudson Yards and the new subway extension, but the mayor's new marquee project is the ferry system, which does aim to provide a new means of transportation to neighborhoods that aren't currently well served by the subway. The fourth recommendation was to increase transparency in EDC and focus on job creation. EDC provides an annual report on discretionary tax benefits, but sometimes that's not enough to evaluate the full package of benefits that some projects receive. Also, EDC does a lot of capital work on behalf of other agencies because it's something EDC has been successful at, but we think that may pull the focus away from their own projects. This has improved a bit over the last four years. Finally, the last recommendation was to use conduit financing to support nonprofits in the arts, education, and in healthcare. This is a low-risk way for the city to provide access to capital because the debt is the obligation of the recipient and not of the city. Conduit debt issuances were more concentrated in these industries during Mayor de Blasio's first term than they were previously, which is a good thing. Thank you, Riley. So a lot of information there from Riley, five recommendations, progress that's been made. Folks that are listening should either have the CBC report that Riley's authored in front of them or reference it before or after listening, um, but a lot of information there, and we're going to dive into some of the details here and other things with James. So thanks again for being here with us. So before we get into all those specifics, James, take a second. When you are meeting somebody, let's say, for the first time and saying what you do, <laughs> how do you sort of just, how do you briefly say, A, what EDC does, and two, how would you describe the de Blasio administration approach to economic development? Sure. Well, it's always hard to explain to someone what, you know, government acronyms mean. So I try to stay away from using acronyms like EDC. So I say, I work for a not-for-profit that is overseen by the mayor, that is focused exclusively on economic development in New York City. And my vision for that organization is to make the city fairer today and stronger tomorrow. That is what motivates me and I think everyone in the de Blasio administration as we think about economic development. So take uh, another second here and, and parse that out a little sure. bit for us. So sure. when you say your work leading mm -hmm. EDC is to make the city fairer today, stronger tomorrow, mm -hmm. uh, be a little more specific. Sure, of course. So the thing that's incredible right now is we've had alm almost unprecedented job growth. Uh, the city is at the lowest unemployment rate that it's ever been at, the most private sector jobs we've ever been at. Um, and the economy is really thriving. So it's a unique time in economic development. A lot of the history of economic development in New York City was about trying to convince people to even come to the city or being willing to consider creating a job anywhere outside of midtown Manhattan or you know, Wall Street. But these days, I mean, and it's a no-brainer that any firm is willing to locate anywhere uh, in Manhattan below 125th Street and downtown Brooklyn, Long Island City, North Shore of Staten Island. I mean, it is incredible how much economic development has changed. And yet, to a degree, that has left out some people. So in the, in the current moment, we are very focused on uh, some of the points raised in the CBC report, 
ensuring that more people have access to jobs that pay good wages. That means people of different educational backgrounds having pathways to careers. And in terms of the stronger tomorrow element, I really believe that we can't just rest on our laurels. We're at a time of incredible economic success, but you know, cities like Detroit rested on their success of you know, the auto manufacturing industry forever, um, and they've fallen on hard times because they put all their eggs in that basket. And so today, what we think about, I spend a lot of time thinking about, is how do we invest in those industries that will be the major job creators and opportunities for tomorrow? How do we foster those sectors and make small seed investments today so that they blossom into huge job opportunities in the future that provide opportunities and career pathways in the way that I was talking about? And, that, and that's been an interesting conversation in New York about diversifying the economy for a long time and the reliance on the finance industry and, and Wall Street. And we know that CBC has looked at that and that has been changing. Right, and it's had implications for the budget because we have had this record growth, but most of the growth has been in lower-paying industries. And so even in, in higher-paying industries, the average wage there is not as high as it was in the security sector. Mm. So we've still continued to see tax revenue growth, but it hasn't been outsized the way it was, say, during some of those Bloomberg years when Wall Street was really um, bringing in the big bucks. Um, but, you know, part of the what's happened in the economic expansion is the growth has been powered by these lower-paying industries. So speak a little bit about what these key investments are that will start to bolster the jobs, the good-paying jobs, as the administration calls them, um, that will be providing wages that are $50,000 and greater. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you see that you will kind of initiate today that you expect will yield these results, say, five, ten years from now? Great, yeah. So... Uh, Just one quick point up front, which is uh, I think a lot of the data that focuses on, you know, average wages not having grown is really a result of the fact that bonuses in finance have shrunk. So that average wages is just not the best metric to look at how wages have changed, I would say. Um, And in fact, we have seen for the first time growth in real median wages, which is, I think, a better metric. and, And that's significant to me. Notwithstanding that, we certainly have seen a lot of job growth in lower wage industries, and we have to focus on that. So this year we put out a, or sorry, January, last year we put Mm -hmm. out a plan for 100,000 new jobs, and we focused on four key sectors, creative and cultural sector, life sciences, healthcare, industrial sector, and technology. Um, And I'll talk about one example in each of those. Uh, In the creative sector, you know, we really believe that you know the crea- creativity is what flows through so much of New York City. It's one of the things that brings people here. It makes it a vibrant place where people want to be, which frankly is a lot of economic development. Um, but we need to continue to be innovative. So we, in, in creative, we're focusing on creating a new virtual reality and augmented reality lab. This is going to be one of the technologies of the future. Imagine today, um, you know, you want to go see uh, the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. You have to get on a plane and fly to Paris. You know, not long from now, you will be able to strap on a pair of goggles and be able to walk around your living room, and it will be as though you are there. That is going to be a revolutionary technology in the way that it changes everything that we do, including surgery, um, the way you experience cultural institutions, as I said, and the way that we you know, design products. It's an incredibly wide range of impacts. And by investing in that technology and making sure the best technology is developed here in New York, we're going to give New York City companies access to that. Uh, in life sciences, uh, we, we have a believe that we have the single best institutions in the world in 
developing amazing technologies that will cure cancer and address the future of healthcare. Um, and yet, we don't believe we're maximizing the potential to commercialize those drugs here in New York City. That's really a result of the fact that it's more expensive to do business in New York than anywhere else. But that's true of Cambridge also, and there's still an incredible life sciences ecosystem there. So what we're doing is investing to try and make sure we get those opportunities out of the lab and into companies that can create good jobs for New Yorkers. That's an industry that pays over $70,000 in a year um, on, on median and also creates opportunities for people who don't have traditional backgrounds. Um, in the industrial sector, we see the way the economy and distribution is being totally changed by companies like Amazon and all of these other online companies that are delivering consumer goods in a totally different way. We have to tackle that and ensure that we're getting quality distribution jobs located in the city uh, as opposed to in New Jersey. Um, that has two benefits. First, it makes those, means those people will be New Yorkers who are getting those jobs and those wages will be in New York. And second, that we don't have as many trucks coming from hundreds of miles away across our bridges, jamming up our expressways. If we can get more goods coming in by water and by shorter local trucks in smaller vehicles, it's better for the economy and it's better for uh, our streets and our health. Uh, and finally, in technology, I mean, obviously, the tech sector has absolutely blossomed in New York City over the last decade, but we have to continue to think in subsectors of technology. My favorite example is cybersecurity. You know, the cybersecurity industry in New York or in the United States has been really grown, uh, incubated in Washington, D.C., because the first entities to invest in cybersecurity was the federal government, right? You have the NSA spending billions of dollars a year on cybersecurity. Not enough, maybe. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we can talk about that. <laughs> but but it is a, it's also an economic opportunity, right? It's a threat, and therefore it's an opportunity. Sure. So the threat is, uh, you know, companies are going to be facing this now. So all of the major Fortune 500 companies that are most interested in cybersecurity, whether it's finance or media or healthcare companies, most of them are headquartered here in New York City. So the customer base is here. We are investing in innovation in cybersecurity, educational opportunities to make sure that as those companies blossom, are started, and grow, that they are right here in New York City. Okay, that all makes sense, and I'm really <laughs> glad that you were able to name all four. I get very nervous since, you know, Rick Perry, that people say oh. I'm going to name yeah, right. three or four or five things, right, and then, exactly. you know, the IRS. don't get there. So, um, <laughs> on... We don't need four more examples, but just on one or two of those, yeah. be specific. What's something that EDC is doing? Mm -hmm. We can stick with cybersecurity if you want. That's where the kickoff of the jobs plan yeah. was at a cybersecurity firm. Yeah. We mm -hmm. had Deputy Mayor Glenn on to talk about the jobs plan mm -hmm. months ago, so yep. it's good to have you here today to talk more about job creation. Um, cybersecurity, or if you want, go with one of the others. Mm -hmm. um, give a specific example of something EDC does to foster that environment. Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll stick with cybersecurity. That's fine. I mean, we have the centerpiece of our cybersecurity effort is a $30 million investment that we envision in a new cybersecurity center. Um, as we expect it to be a physical space um, where we can incubate companies, so bring together the large, corp the large companies who are interested in purchasing these new cyber products with the innovators and smaller companies who are going to create them. Um, and it's also critically going to invest in education. We, if you look at um, 
Washington, D.C., the University of Maryland has an 8,000-person program in cybersecurity. The largest program in New York City in cybersecurity is 500 people at John Jay College. So more than anything, the economy today is being driven by talent. So we have to be investing in talent in these critical sectors because when you have the talent, the companies will come. I really believe that it's just a fundamental shift in the way uh, companies think about where they're going to be. So at its core, it is investing in talent while bringing together that talent with the customers and the companies to make this incredible ecosystem and really congeal it here in New York City. So everyone feels like if I'm a new cybersecurity startup, I have to be in New York. It's the place to be. So you create a space, you then lease to mm-hmm. companies, you yeah. create co-working spaces, you know, you have mm-hmm. the, the diversity within mm-hmm. that, that larger space, but you're trying to get people there together to both do the work they do, but then also interact with each other. Yeah. But you hit on the education point piece mm-hmm. of this. Yeah. Where does that come in? Because yeah. there's only so much talent here if the schools here aren't producing... Right. So we're, we have, I mean, so we actually, we have a current um, request for proposals out on the street from, and we are, I'm very optimistic that we'll see incredible responses from our New York City based institutions to expand significantly their, uh, their programming in cybersecurity as a result of our initiative. I mean, I think if you look, step back and look at what I think was one of the smartest things the Bloomberg administration do, did, which was invest in Cornell Technion, mm-hmm. which is this new uh, academic institution focused on technology. That was because the Bloomberg administration sat down and said, this is a sector we need to invest in. We are telling uh, our educational institutions the same thing. It is time to think about creating special programs in cybersecurity, and I am confident that they will respond. That's right. I think, you know, the human capital piece is so important. And we do a scorecard that actually tracks that and finds that, you know, New York has a lot of strong and attractive features that can bring in the talent. But there are these steps, like what you're saying, in bolstering some of these higher education programs that are really critical if you're going to set up the economy to be competitive five or 10 years from now, um, or even in the longer term. Um, what else do you think makes New York City competitive? And so I asked this because I want to slightly pivot now to tax breaks, right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Amazon, yeah. and there was kudos to the administration for saying we will submit a proposal that will not include these tax breaks. Still mm-hmm. unclear what the state offered as part of that, but we're not going to offer these discretionary tax breaks. So what do you think, you know, in that proposal, what can you offer to a company like Amazon to say, hey, you should really be here? Um, what makes New York City competitive? And then... Let's talk a little bit about how that approach might be a little different for you know other companies where mm-hmm. you have offered tax breaks. Sure, um, I mean not I, the MTA. We know, yes. we know that, but right, yeah. right. Um, so, so I think first and foremost, it is about the talent. I mean, the Amazon proposal, everything else is about talent. I talked about it for a second, but I think it's especially true um, in. Uh, in the Amazon case, because when you look at what they're requesting and you talk to them, this is a talent play. You know, they have a headquarters in Seattle. Um, it's not generating the, the, you know, the level of high quality talent that they need to grow their company. So they need a whole second headquarters in another city that will draw from an entirely separate talent pool. Um, and so I think that is a number one way ahead of everything else. Um, and so I think the thing about New York City that sells us, we have more people with bachelor's degrees than uh, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and Los Angeles combined. I mean, that is an incredible statistic. If you're looking for a depth of talent, 
this is the place to be. And that doesn't even go to the quality of the talent and the, you know, the amazing institutions that we have here. Um, and I think, frankly, a lot of the other elements of this, my response, connect to talent. The thing about New York City today is it is an incredibly wonderful place to live, right? Crime has dropped dramatically. We have in, the mayor has instituted universal pre-K. Um, you know, we're investing in new parks, uh, you know, new modes of transportation like the ferry system. It is just a better and better place to be. So that fundamentally is why both people and companies want to live here. We're in a virtuous cycle right now. And I believe we have to continue to invest to ensure that we have that virtuous positive cycle. Because when the companies come here, people want to come here, more companies want to come here, and it's just a positive outcome for everyone. So let's talk a little bit about discretionary tax breaks that EDC offers as mm-hmm. part of an incentive package to a firm to either relocate, come here, mm-hmm. uh, not leave in some cases, and mm-hmm. retain the employment. What is the approach there? I mean, one of the things that I think people found surprising about the evidence in our report was that the breaks vary, you know, the size of the benefit per job varies widely and can be extremely high. In many mm-hmm. cases, it was over $100,000 per job. There were a couple of um, examples where the benefit was as high as 500000 mm-hmm. um, You know, don't there need to be sort of stricter standards here? Shouldn't there yeah. be a little more sunlight? Um, mm-hmm. why, why are some of the benefits so high? What's right. the thinking behind how EDC approaches these packages? Sure. I mean, I think just I think your report identified three transactions that were over $100,000 mm-hmm. per job, and mm-hmm. the one that was $600,000 per job was, in your report, two jobs. It was $1.2 million, mm-hmm. just for context. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, to start, my strategy as it relates to discretionary tax incentives is you should only be making discretionary tax incentives where it is creating or bolstering a sector to create opportunities for the future. You cannot continue, to, you cannot or should not support an entire sector through tax breaks forever. You know, I'll take life science as an example. We believe that there are a certain number of investments we should make upfront in life sciences to get a core amount of businesses here so that the ecosystem becomes inevitable. And I, I think that is the point in any transaction is you have to make you have to believe that it leads to a broader story. Um, broadly speaking, um, I, I think the notion of you're setting artificial limits of dollars per tax break is just is not the way I think about it, frankly. It fundamentally comes down to what you believe the base case is if you don't make a discretionary tax incentive um, versus what would happen otherwise. Um, you know, I don't want to see somebody spending even $1,000 per job if that company would have come and done the growth that they would have regardless. Right. So I don't, I don't think that an artificial cap is a solution. The reality is it's much more art than science, in my mm-hmm. opinion. I would we say no to the vast vast majority of companies that come in the door. It is really when you see an opportunity in a sector that you want to grow where you can make a couple of investments at the outset to see potential for future growth. That is where it makes sense. But if there's no kind of uh, clearly articulated criteria or mm-hmm. goals behind that in advance of pursuing these deals, mm-hmm. how can you then t- how do you turn around and evaluate it, you know, down the line to say like, hey, that was that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you want to no, no, that? I, 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 I was going to say, I think that's a great question. I was going to ask something very similar, which is, you know, sort of take us inside the mm-hmm. evaluation process yeah. of, you know, how do you look at a deal that you did do mm-hmm. or a package that you did offer yeah. and say, this worked, we should do something similar again, or man, we really missed yeah. the boat here. Well, I think that, I think 
the truth is it's 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 very hard to evaluate in like a one or two year time frame. Like I was talking about life sciences. Um, we'll know if our life sciences investments were smart in 10 years mm -hmm. if we see a blossoming ecosystem in life sciences. Uh, and it, frankly, if we see tens of thousands of people working in that sector that are not a part of it today, then whether I spent 500,000 a job on a couple of deals at the outset or $1,000 a job at the outset, I'll argue that that was a smart investment. I'm not saying that that's my intention. I'm saying it really is looking at it holistically is my view. And that's why it has to be sector targeted. It has to be targeted for sectors that you really believe have an opportunity. Like I said, you know, cybersecurity, I'm not planning discretionary tax incentives for cybersecurity, but if there was a, there was a company um, you know, that was planning to grow to a thousand people, and it was going to be, you know, the thing that cemented New York City as the place for the cybersecurity industry to be. I might take a hard look at that. I think it, it's 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 very much again art more than science in my experience. And I, uh, what we do, what I do, is I ask very hard questions. I say, how do we know that we wouldn't get the same thing if we didn't put in a single dollar? Because that's the most important question you could ask. Because if you can get if you can do it without putting in a single dollar, then you shouldn't be doing anything. So you mentioned com companies sort of pitching you on, hey, we're exploring mm -hmm. maybe a move to New York City. Yeah. Take us inside that without necessarily naming names, but you know, maybe giving us an example of what is what do those interactions sometimes sound like more specifically? Yeah. And you say, mm -hmm. you know, you've already indicated some of what your response is, some yeah. of what your lens is on mm -hmm. that, but but Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a specific example without naming a company. Uh, but I had a meeting with the CEO of a company that's currently headquartered in New York City. It's a life sciences company. Um, it's a small but growing company. They have their, um, they have been forced to move their lab operations to New York City because there was not enough wet lab space in, in the city. Um, they're a great story. The founder came out of uh, one of the New York institutions. Her technology was developed at uh, one of the great institutions in the city. Um, they have, they are, absolutely on a path to tremendous success and growth, adding hundreds of people over the next few years. Um, and, you know, they came in and said, the truth of the matter is, you know, Chris Christie has offered, you know, us millions and millions and millions of dollars to come. We want to be in New York. Um, I want to work with you to find a way to continue to be here, but it's very hard for me to make the argument economically. Um, and so, you know, that situation, you know, I, I, we haven't even necessarily made a determination about whether it makes sense or not. That's a, that's a taking you inside the story because we certainly don't want to be in a race to the bottom. We don't want to be in a situation where we're bidding against other places to try and offer the best tax breaks because we don't need to do that. We're in New York City. People want to be here. That's why people are willing to pay more to be in New York than other places because of everything that we talked about earlier in the conversation. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if you believe that a company is going to be seminal to the success of an ecosystem in a particular sector, you have to give it a hard look. So we're in our last few minutes here with uh, James Patchett, President and CEO of the New York City Economic Development Corporation, talking about his and the de Blasio administration's uh, economic development strategies and, and plans for spurring job growth. Um, one thing, um, I know there's there's other things on the uh, CBC report that, that Maria might want to get to in our last few minutes, but I do want to touch on some of the stuff with the ferry. Yeah, please. The 
ferry system. You guys are very excited about the ridership, but mm-hmm. there's also been some problems with the boats and also some of the um, captaining of the boats. Mm-hmm. Um, just give us your overview of how things went and how you need to address some of the the problems maybe some problems created by excitement over it that mm-hmm. mean you need to scale up, buy bigger boats, whatever is going yeah. on with that, but then mm-hmm. also some of the other... Um, and by the scale of the subsidy. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big believer in ferries because my parents are from Greece, they're from an island. You know, commuting by ferry is like a very regular thing. I think it makes sense for the city, but does the subsidy make sense? And I'm not so sure. And perhaps some of the oversubscription problems are due to the low, the high rate of subsidy. So... Okay, so... Answer all so, six I'll of answer, those questions. I'll answer all <laughs> same questions. So the, the, the ferry system has undoubtedly been a tremendous success. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when you show up on the cover of the New Yorker magazine, which is what happened uh, the other week, it is an evidence that has become a part of New York City's culture, as it should be. There was a yes. ferry system 100 years ago in the city that was completely eliminated. Um, and now we're at this moment where people, more and more people are moving to our waterfronts, and we have an opportunity to open up more and more of our waterfronts. So fundamentally, from an economic development perspective, there is nothing I think you can invest in that's more important um, than expanding your transportation network. Because um, it just it just makes people need to spend less time getting to work, which means they can be more productive. The ferry system has uh, had over three, or almost three million riders at this point, um, which was you know, more than 30% of what we originally expected. Um, the ridership was unbelievable uh, during the warmer months, and it's still ahead of our projections even in the colder months. So I think fundamentally it's, an, it's it evidenced by people voting with their feet and walking onto the ferries and taking them everywhere. I run into people all of the time who are so excited about the ferry system. You know, every customer service survey that I have looked at shows that people overwhelmingly think the ferries are a fantastic addition to their lives and are safe. Um, you know, there's been some stuff in the news about, uh, you know, we had some corrosion in some of the vessels. In all honesty, that is pretty common for new vessels that are running in saltwater, especially in the New York Harbor, to have some corrosion. The uh, holes that were developed as a result of the corrosion in a couple of vessels were smaller than the size of a dime. There was never any actual uh, safety risk at all. That's why we have tremendously, uh, you know, tremendously rigorous safety protocols. The vessels are inspected every day. Um, you know, we have visual inspections. The Coast Guard regularly inspects them. We met with the Coast Guard um, recently to go through all of our safety protocols. We take those issues very seriously. But fundamentally, you know, any challenges with the system is because it's been such an incredible success. And I think it's just a wonderful addition to the city landscape. And the subsidy right. the question. question. Oh, sure. <laughs> so look, the most important one. Right, right. Of course, the CBC question. So the um, so look, I think you know everything is a, everything is a challenge. You need to balance things. You know, this is right in line with what uh, the commuter commuter rail and express bus. It's cheap, much cheaper than express bus costs. Um, so I think it's certainly in line with what the level of subsidy is for other forms of transportation. You know, we can quibble about whether you know six dollars per person subsidy is an appropriate level of subsidy. But I think you know the success uh, is pretty incredible, and the most important thing to me is that it has carried you know, almost three million people and is getting it, making it easier for people to get to work. If I can give you one example, there's a woman I rode the ferry system with, um, who uh, you know who, it used to take her uh, an hour and a half um, to get to work, and now it's taking her 
45 minutes. You know, it's just, it's just an incredible difference in people's lives, and it, it dramatically impacts the amount of time they're able to spend with their families, the amount of time they're able to spend at work. It, it just, it's just a great addition to our, you know, where we are right now. The, um, the city council passed and the uh, mayor allowed to become law additional reporting. Mayor signed, yeah. He's, he's signed. Okay. Yeah. I thought we, uh, I thought he had uh, just sort of let them uh, become law. But, um, but anyway, talk a little bit about um, what you're going to um, now be reporting uh-huh. that you weren't and, and how that affects decision making and what that will allow, you know, public yeah. insight into. Yeah, we worked very closely with um, three council members. Uh, council member Gorodnik, who was the chair of the Economic Development Com- Committee, um, Councilmember Johnson, who's now the speaker, and Councilmember Rosenthal, who represents the Upper West Side, um, on some bills to improve uh, transparency and public reporting at EDC. Uh, so, the, I think the two key reforms that are part of it are more public, um, more public meetings, and opportunities for more community conversations around the city's economic development projects, um, and impact statements. Uh, for for economic development transactions. I think it'll be more information and data that's shared with the public, more community conversations, which are always a good thing. So speaking of the council, right, they've just reorganized under the new speaker, and there is now a task force dedicated to the Brooklyn Queens connector. Mm-hmm. Give us an update on that project. Where are you? What are you, you know, what are the milestones for the next year? Um, yeah, that, that the BQX uh, task force is being chaired by uh, Councilmember Menchaca, who actually reached out to me yesterday. So I'm looking forward to, you know, hearing what their plans are. You know, the project, we just completed uh, a very complex engineering analysis of, by going down the individual streets and actually looking at what the utilities were that were under the ground. Um, As you can imagine, building a 17-mile streetcar across streets that are hundreds of years old um, is not easy. Uh, And it's surprising how little uh, we know about what's under our streets. So what we what we did was a full route analysis of so we understand what's under our streets. And now what we're evaluating is what utilities would could be left in place versus which ones would need to be relocated as a part of it. That is a significant factor in any cost. So once we have that nailed down, we're working closely with the utilities on that. I think we should be able to move the project ahead. Is it to what magnitude is it different than you thought? What, once you've actually gone down there, was there, uh, a, you know, I've read yeah. things about how there's no good map of the underground yeah. in New York City. I'm sure yeah. others at this table have read that as well. Yeah. Um, and maybe sure. this is another good push for that, as yeah. well as you know, concerns about um, terror attacks and things like that. But mm-hmm. to what magnitude did this surprise you, and is is it going to alter the timeline? No, actually, you know, the thing I was actually, it's I think we were surprised the degree to which the maps were more accurate than we expected, um, which was pretty shocking for anyone. We I actually hear just, that often, yeah, <laughs> capital no. planning in the city. Exactly. Okay. No, we actually, we actually found that mo- at least the major lines were, were actually pretty accurate on the city maps that we had. So it turns out that the DEP and the utilities had been keeping pretty good track of where they were putting in lines. Um, you know, where there were some surprises. Um, as I think the main impact is... is as a result, thinking about exactly what streets you want to go down, because you don't want to go down a street with, you know, where you're going to have to take take up the entire street and move, you know, a 10-foot sewer pipe uh, a block over, because that is a huge expenditure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're just trying to make sure we're more than anything adjusting the route 
to ensure that we're not going over like massive utilities uh, that are going to add hundreds of millions of dollars to the project. And well, what's the price tag now? Well, you know, I think that it's it's large. We don't have a final price tag because we're still working, you know, with the utilities. And I think one of the key elements, honestly, is how much uh, responsibility utilities would have to relocate um, uh, any of their operations as opposed to the city. So we're still working out the details. And so to wrap up here, uh, and thank you again mm-hmm. for, oh, thank for you. joining us. So on BQX, mm-hmm. the um, there's nothing that you've seen, that there's nothing that's come across your desk that makes you think um, this is not going forward as planned, that this is happening it's happening as the as mm-hmm. the you know sort of original sort of scope and timeline which was vague but understandably so i think mm-hmm. in some ways um that that that's going forward well i think there, there's nothing about the analysis that we've been doing recently that has fundamentally changed anything about the project i think you know at the end of the day when we pull the trigger on what's going to be you know billions of dollar project um you know i think it will the the mayor is going to have to look at all of the financial obligations that the city has and make a determination about exactly what makes for this for the sense for the future of the city. But there's nothing existential about the project um, from our digging in the streets that has led us to think that it is, you know, either you know billions of dollars cheaper or billions of dollars more expensive than we originally thought. And to tie that back to the first question, we'll make it the last question: Is BQX? the number one project on your agenda leading EDC for this second term, um, you know, just assuming for conversation's sake, mm-hmm. you know, you're in this for another term. Let's assume, um, let's, thank you for your uh, confidence in my job. <laughs> well, no, this is, yeah. that, that is this, where does, where does BQX, yeah. I guess, fit in the portfolio for EDC for you? Is this like the big economic development project of the next four years or yeah. do you not think about it that way? I think, you know, I think once we get into implementation mode, that, you know, that will be the case. Uh, but, you know, at the moment, uh, the thing that I actually spend the most time thinking about is our portfolio of properties in Sunset Park. EDC has um, millions of square feet of industrial real estate in Sunset Park, yeah, more than two times the size of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, and it has been underutilized and underinvested in for decades. We're bringing on half a million square feet in the Brooklyn Army Terminal. Uh, we have the the certificate of occupancy any day now. Filling that up with, you know, half a million square feet of new companies uh, that, you know, otherwise wouldn't have access to affordable industrial space. Um, We're investing significantly at Bush Terminal to create our Made in New York campus. All of these things, uh, you know, can lead us, sort of, again, going back to the past. It's about the possibility to, you know, get over 10,000 jobs back in that area, which is what it used to be. But now we're at about 5,000 jobs. So I really believe that we, if we invest smartly, we can get thousands of more people working in that Sunset Park district. And I think it's a really unique opportunity to have a, a special model for economic development. Okay. James Patchett, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Riley Edwards, thank you for your work on this report. And folks, as I said at the top of the show, should uh, check out uh, Riley in the CBC report related to economic development in New York City. James, thank you. Thank you. Bye.